You absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. I I didn't know if you wanted to say anything before. Ah, there's not literally there is nothing off the record with me. So anything right. you guys want to talk. So is this like what is your all's podcast about? We are a true crime and paranormal podcast, yeah. and also we dabble in, like, neighborhood drama. We talk about, like, <laughs> things that happen in people's neighborhoods. They're getting pissed off at their neighbors. Um, usually every episode, Amy will talk about a uh, true crime story and report about it, and then I will share a paranormal story. And okay. those are obviously really big topics. I mean, they could go anywhere from murder to money laundering to cybercrime to murder <laughs> to uh we don't have very many episodes that don't involve murder um <laughs> well of course i mean that's sexy pretty popular fun. it's kind of popular it's, it's popular yeah but yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll go into yeah. like aliens and ghosts and even okay. cryptids so good, good, good. Yeah. well you know my mom so we can talk crime and I can give you some paranormal stories about my mother. Paranormal. Oh, oh snap. Okay, really? cool. So we're yeah. getting really I'm, in. I'm not sure how 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 cool <laughs> you'll find it by the end of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. But I'd love to Yeah, well, I don't think I've uh, other than the Anglerfish podcast like 4 years ago that I did, I don't think I've told that story on a podcast. I may have told it on uh, the Lex Friedman show. I'm not sure. So uh, we could go over that. Yeah, it'd be all right. It'd get okay. the audience's attention. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I love it. So that would be awesome. Amy, do you want to start it off by sharing one of your neighborhood stories real quick? Yeah. So okay. my neighborhood story is, again, from that. Uh, I posted in a neighborhood group. It's called I Hate My Neighbors. And I asked people for neighborhood stories. And this person said, our neighbors from hell dumped their kid's sandbox out on our property when we saw the piles of sand and asked them about it, they said, we didn't think you would mind. <laughs> and, I mean, we don't sweet, care if you mind I mean, or not. I feel like the, the, <laughs> I, I could definitely see that happening in our neighborhood. Oh, a thousand percent. And you know, you know. Yes. That's we how have a me, I don't know if you know, Brett, that me and Amy are actually neighbors and that's what, how this whole thing started. I so we have our that. own neighborhood drama that we both share. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Has, have there been any time. murders in the neighborhood? Not yet. Not, Not yet. that we it's know coming, of though. yet. It's coming. That's that yeah, sand stuff never... keeps going on. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> well, you never know what's going on behind your neighbor's doors. So <laughs> that's that's true. Just <laughs> ask Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh my god! <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we just had someone in our Facebook group say there were neighbors with him growing up. Yeah, we're like what crazy so crazy. i was i was in prison with a guy you know the green river killer yeah he used to drive the church bus and i was in prison with a kid that rode the church bus with him every sunday oh my gosh <laughs> yeah yeah i bet he had some stories you know he oh, said sure. the guy uh the guy never let on that anything was wrong never did anything odd or anything else like that i guess he just wasn't you know in for Nicholas. His, was, his, his name was Nicholas Sandifer. He was in for uh, methamphetamine and uh, and a weapon. 
And when the when the cops came to arrest him, when the feds came to get him, he had his front door bungee corded. So they come in with the with the battering ram and hit the front door with the battering ram. Of course, the door comes off the hinges, off the frame, but the bungee cord catches it. So it's like vroom vroom. <laughs> so they went through thirty minutes of that until finally Nicholas decides to come out and surrender. <laughs> he's like, I'm tired of watching this happen. I'm just like, I'm out. Exactly. <laughs> he said, finally they were they stopped. They're like, will you please come out? And he was like, okay, all right. That I'll reminds help me of like a cartoon, like a yeah, <laughs> Tom and Jerry. Oh, yeah. you, you know, I heard so many meth stories. I've never done methamphetamine. Or really any type of drug other than alcohol. And I like alcohol at times. But um, you hear so many stories about methamphetamine. There was another guy that several people who got so paranoid that they would go and get concrete blocks and set every piece of furniture in the house up on the concrete block so they could see the entire floor. Oh. <laughs> Just so that no- they knew everything was okay. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's nuts. Just go to extremes. Yeah. No kidding. Oh my goodness. Um, would you be okay with Bree sharing her story first? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a short one. Yeah. All right. But, and please, if you have commentary on it, share it. We, well, you know what? That's what I do. I talk. Yeah. yeah we we highly <laughs> encourage it. <laughs> yeah. We love talking. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I know you're from Kentucky. So I wanted to do a little story. <laughs> I want to do a little story from there. All right. Uh, so I am doing a story on the Pope Lick monster in Kentucky. Oh. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Where maybe. is Pope Lick? Uh, Pope Lick Creek is in, it's near New- Louisville, Kentucky. It's okay. kind of just outside of it. All right. So uh, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, beneath the railroad of Trestle Bridge, lurks okay. the Kentucky Pope Monster, or Kentucky Pope Lake Monster, or some may call him the Kentucky Goat Man. Uh, I've heard of the Goat Man. Yeah, I, I was didn't about know to say, you may lo- yes. know one better as that. Uh, now, as urban legends go, there are lots of theories and stories on this monster. According to one of the legends, the creature uses either hypnosis or voice mimicry to lure in trespassers onto the trestle bridge, only to be greeted by an oncoming train. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. fun. Fun oh. times. Uh, other legends say the monster jumps down from the top of the trussel bridge onto roofs of cars passing by, and others claim that the monster jumps down and attacks people uh, with a blood-stained axe. There's always oh some gosh. kind of axe involved That's in, that some kind of, in these stories about. like that, yeah. <laughs> and the uh, apparently the sight of the creature is so unsettling to people that they will jump off the bridge and kill themselves. Oh, wow. Some believe that the monster is actually a human-goat hybrid circus freak who vowed revenge after being mistreated for years. <laughs> and uh, yep, others claim that the being is really just a twisted reincarnation of a farmer who sacrificed goats in exchange for satanic powers oh, and good gosh. crops. <laughs> ma, ma. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, so believe what you want, but um, I'm gonna talk about the. Uh, so it's a common misconception that the railroad and the bridge is closed and abandoned. So 
this makes teenagers be like, hey, let's go out there. It's closed. There's no train coming, even though it's a giant railroad that's connected to like, <laughs> duh. And there's an eight foot fence. So that's not going to stop them. So lots of people have become victim to things that getting hit by the train and dying on that bridge. That makes uh, sense. One of the most recent ones was a girl named Savannah Bright back in 2019, who was just pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, I'll go through a couple of the people that had passed. Uh, a Roquel Bain at just 26 in 2016 was hit by a train, fell to her death while her boyfriend survived hanging. Uh, a Nicholas oh Jewell just at 19 in 2000 uh, died after encountering the train. A James Ratterman, just at 35 in 1994, was trapped underneath their overturned ATV. Ooh. And they were stuck under the ATV, so they ended up getting pinned by the train or hit by the train. A Michael Wells, just at 14 in 94, managed to tuck his body underneath the track to avoid being hit by the train and actually survived. A Christian Butts. Damn it. <laughs> Every time. In 1993. <laughs> it's the mature the mature side of me is just like, don't laugh, don't laugh. Well, you're, you're saying Christian butts, we got the Pope monster thing, and I'm like, hey, it makes sense. Yeah. Butts, the Pope. <laughs> oh. Of course there's got to be a joke about the Pope. <laughs> uh, along with two other women and three men, she was across the trestle when they saw light from the train and they all managed to survive. Um, a Grady in 1992 was a student at Miami university was hit at about one forty-five AM. Actually he fell and a, but in 1987, a Jack bomb was struck and killed. A David Wayne in 90, 1986 sustained injuries when he fell off the trestle bridge, but he survived and then he died eventually. A John K. List was struck by the train and he was with a friend named Randall Graves and had been on the trestle shooting crows. Okay. It's fun. Normal. Sure. Graves was able to hang on to a cross tie while the train passed, saving his life. And he was within 30 feet. List was in John. I always forgot his name was List. Uh, John List was within 30 feet of the end of the trestle when he was actually struck and killed by the train. So his buddy oh, wow. lived, but he died. <clears throat> wow. And lastly, in 84, a Sean Fleshman survived injuries uh, from falling from the trestle. So, okay. So let's I talk about questions. these theories. Yeah, definitely. Did, did any of the survivors see or hear the goat man? That's what I'm looking into. And I'm like, okay, so where does this story come from? Because right. nobody said they seen the goat man. It's just everybody's heard about him and said they go out there to try and see him and they end up getting hit by a train. Oh, my gosh. I mean, a train <laughs> is not a very quiet vehicle. It's not. That's my <laughs> that's my idea, too. I'm like, how do you not know that this thing is coming? But if you look up where the trestleage trestleage is, it's a very high bridge. Okay. So there's not a lot of room to run. And it's, I mean, it would take a long time to get off of it. So I ah. guess that's why people resort to kind of hanging off of it if they can. Um, um, 
So it takes a long time to get off of it, but it's probably just a bunch of drunk teenagers <laughs> up there hoping they can see this public monster goat man. And they end up meeting the train. And the thing is that the conductors see all this happen, too, and there's nothing they can do about it. Oh, They're no. like, oh, there's another guy. Yeah, you can't really just stop a train a on a dime. Nope. <laughs> nope. That's so sad. One of the conductors, yeah, yeah. One of the conductors quit because of it because he couldn't see it anymore. Yeah, quit That's after he ran sick. over like four people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Start keeping points. Exactly. <laughs> look, <laughs> look, I was okay with three, but four. <laughs> That's where That's I draw the line. That's it. <laughs> um, so regarding these theories, the circus freak is obviously the coolest one in my mind. I think it's interesting. Uh, so as I said, one of the legends involves him being a circus freak. And it began when a man named Colonel Beauregard, and I'm going to butcher this last name because it's, it's, it's a tough one. Schnitzkadit. I don't know. We're just going to call him that. So who was a ringmaster? <laughs> he was a ringmaster and an owner of a traveling circus that performed across the country, especially in the deep South in the 1930s. Okay. Uh, his reputation, he was a liar, a cheat. He was abusive to his carnies. He just was an all-around shitty guy. Uh, the crew themselves were also not that great. They were a bunch of lawbreakers, cutthroats, pirates. Uh, some entertainers were thrown into there. And every town that they left, there was some kind of unknown uh, robbery, accidental deaths, things that just followed them, and it likely involved them. One wow. night after stopping in a small town near Maryland, the bearded lady of the group d- discovered an infant left in a hay-filled crate outside of her tent. The child oh was severely malformed with stubs protruding from its head and misshapen legs that looked like hooves. So, obviously, they took the baby in, and the ringleader was like, this guy is going to make me money. Let's keep him. <laughs> Let's so keep him. Like it's they a keep, they, Yeah, they keep him. He's in a cage his whole life pretty much, in prison, and he ends up not being the nicest guy, believe it or not. That's I mean, understandable. Yeah, I would have an yeah. attitude as well. Yeah, I, I'd be a little <laughs> bit pissed. <laughs> After one night during a thunderstorm, they were traveling to Louisville, Kentucky for a show, and a bolt of lightning struck the tracks, causing the train to derail just on the trestle bridge over Poplick Creek. The wreck killed most of the crew, but one supposedly survived, that being Goatman. Goatman. He took revenge on any of the people that were just barely alive and ripped their bodies to shreds and oh took gosh. permanent residence in the area and hates all of mankind and will not hesitate to lure in his next victim. Oh, that's a pretty good story. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun one. Yeah, that it's is super, super exciting. Makes you excited to go to the circus. Yeah, I like it. I like yeah. it. I want to see him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would give a go, quarter to see that guy. Why don't you a go quarter. to the bridge then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I hear people die there. <laughs> <laughs> Just like one or two. One yeah. or two. <laughs> so I don't know if cults were a thing in Kentucky or if you knew that cults were a thing in Kentucky. A thing in Kentucky, but they were. 
Well, I did not know that. I mean, I guess they were a thing everywhere in the 70s. So, Amy, you'd be able to tell us that more. Absolutely. Yeah. In the mid-70s, rumors of a satanic cult and demonic rituals were circulating in the Pope Lick area, along with reports of missing dogs, cats, and other domestic animals. A mysterious farm known as the Four Winds, which was not far from the trestle, was suspected to be owned by a group of Satanists who worshipped the Pope like monster as the living embodiment of Baphomet, which is the goat of Mendez, it's like the devil. Uh, right. And in the 1980s and 90s, that farm had a fence that was painted in red and black and had a warning sign saying, trespassers be persecuted and people also would say that they would hear tribal drum beats and chanting uh from behind the farm there Uh, so that so it wasn't just a garage band practicing no yeah i mean it it totally could have been you know in seattle in the 70s that would have been in place (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i wasn't there (laughs) <laughs> so, if you want to go see the uh, Pope Lick monster, you know, if you go for it, but don't because you might end up seeing a train and it might be the last thing you see. So, that is the story, the very short story on the Kentucky Goatman, aka the Pope Lick monster. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> I, I think we should hunt the Goatman down and get him on this show. Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah see? I agree. And maybe, or at least get someone to dress up like us. the Goatman. <laughs> oh, there we go. Maybe that's what it'll be for Halloween break. There you go. Boom. You could have a little Lego train and the little minifigures and run them over. <laughs> it's so messed up. <laughs> oh my Build God. you a little toothpick trestle and the Lego train and you can have one of the minifigures hanging from it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's what um, you do. Thank you for sharing that, Brie. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks for listening. You kind of didn't really have a choice. I love yeah. it. I like, <laughs> I like cryptids. I love doing stories on cryptids. Well, I gotta fun. tell you, I like the vibe you guys have got going on here. This hey, is cool. Oh, go. Yeah. We're, we, we're laid back. We like to have fun. Yeah. yeah. We'll leave the editing to Amy later. There you go. So much editing. <laughs> yeah, you take care of this, Amy. <laughs> the stuff that I'm like, well, uh, that's probably wrong. I shouldn't put that in the podcast. I'll take People out. probably won't like that. Yeah. We, we take out a lot of stuff. And then I'm like, maybe I should ed- edit that out on our Patreon donor one, too. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. <laughs> so I have a couple of questions for you, Brett. Did you All wait? Right. Did you introduce Brett on? No, I, I'm the unknown Can factor we... on this show yes, right now. This is everybody. This is Brett <laughs> no, Johnson. <we> not. <laughs> I was wondering that while I was telling mine. This is everyone Brett knows who I am because of the big damn sign in the back. <laughs> there you go. You didn't need uh, introduction. <laughs> with the Brett, he, he's with the Brett Johnson show. Uh, but also, Brett is our first. And I'm sorry if this is insensitive, but he is our first criminal that we are uh, interviewing. And yeah. uh, but he didn't kill anyone, so that's good. Nope, day's yeah. not over yet. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. Who are you, Brett? What? All right. So we'll go into the spiel. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on. I am Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service referred to me as the original Internet Godfather. Now, how do you get a title like that? Well, 39 felonies because 38 wasn't enough. I was placed on the United States Most Wanted list. I escaped from prison. And if that weren't enough. Oh, my God. I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. Those 39 felonies had to do with refining modern financial cybercrime as we now know it. Account takeovers, credit card theft, phishing schemes, tax return identity theft, stimulus fraud, you name it. I was on the ground floor of developing, implementing, refining it. Of course. That gets one sent to prison, deservedly sure. so. And usually that's yeah. where the story ends. I was, I've been very fortunate in my life. Um, through the help of my sister, my wife, Michelle, and then finally the FBI, I was given the opportunity to turn my life around. Today I have the, the Brett Johnson show on YouTube. I'm an ambassador for AARP. I work with the FBI. I teach at Quantico. I am the first chief criminal officer on the planet. Uh, do podcast. I'm working on a book with the same guy that did The Irishman and October Sky and The World's Greatest Beer Run, which just came out last week. I'm working with Ridley Scott's production company to do a docudrama series on my story. I live a very blessed life that I probably don't deserve, but I'm damn grateful to have. And I am adamant about protecting people and businesses from that type of person that I used to be. So how is that for an intro? I think that was that's awesome. I've ever heard of. <laughs> You've done this once or twice. Clearly. A couple of times. <laughs> you didn't even have to read it off of a paper. You're like, blah, 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 blah. let me list this, this. That's so cool. Yeah, especially the way you've turned it all around. I think that's yeah. awesome. It's like, well, as you know, it took a minute. Yeah, but you know, everything does. <laughs> everything yeah. does. That's true. It was not a straight line for me at all. Um, I don't know what you guys want to talk about. You know, I'm on Netflix right now on the web of make believe. I've got episodes yeah. five and six on that. I'm on Hulu on black market season two, episode one. Uh, I'm in several books, things like that. I'm, um, I'm extremely well-versed in uh, cybercrime, identity theft, cybersecurity. As a matter of fact, I broke a, um, a story just a couple of weeks ago about one of the largest heists in history. Uh, 2016, Bitfinex, a cryptocurrency exchange, has hit for 119,000 Bitcoins, basically $4.5 billion worth of tokens. They arrested a couple of people uh, February of this year, and I broke some news on that just about three weeks ago that wow. is kind of earth-shattering. Uh, That's about incredible. One of the family members. I, it, it landed me in, in two different documentaries about this case. And then I've been talking to Forbes, BuzzFeed, the New Yorker, uh, all these other news agencies as well. And not only that, but we got more groundbreaking news coming out this next Friday about it. Oh, we're blowing the doors off of things right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) That's really exciting for you. That's awesome. Yeah. The Bitcoin uh, situation, did that, was that involving a couple um, it was involving Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan yeah. slash Razzle Khan. I heard about that. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is, is they were arrested February 22nd of this year. 
they were indicted for money laundering charges, not for the theft itself. So no one's been indicted on the theft. A friend of mine that, well, I say a friend, an associate, excuse me, an associate of mine who I put in prison, <laughs> he, he contacted me a couple of months ago and he starts sending me these documents. Well, when I got, so Shadow Crew, the group that I started, it makes the front cover of Forbes, August of 2004, headline, Who's Stealing Your Identity? October 26th of 2004, the United States Secret Service, they arrested 33 people, six countries, six hours. I'm the only guy publicly mentioned at that point of getting away. They picked me up four months later. They gave me a job, and I'm the guy who continues to break the law from inside Secret Service offices for the next 10 months until they find <laughs> out about it. I go on a cross-country crime spree, steal $600,000 in four months, make the United States most wanted list, go to Disney World, get arrested, sent to prison, escape from prison, get arrested again, serve out my time. Oh, yeah, it's one hell of a story. <laughs> so, so... While I was working with the United States Secret Service, they hired me to work with them. While I was working with them, we got hacked. This this attacker comes in, installs a keylogger on my system, and he stays on that system for at least three months. Well, that person who installed that keylogger is Ilya Lichtenstein's father. Oh. Oh, no one on the planet knew anything about that until I said that on my show. So it blew the roof off the entire case. The Secret Service knew about it, but guess what? They had kept that hidden. They hadn't told anybody about it because what happens is when I was working with the United States Secret Service, we built cases against nine different people. The problem with that is, well, I commit crime while I'm there. Then I go on the run. They can't really put me on the stand to testify against these people. So I'm out. The machine that that got all the information, all the evidence, was the same machine that Ilya Lichtenstein's father, Eugene, got access to. So you can't tell any jury that, hey, the, the machine itself was compromised because the potential of tainted evidence is there. They wouldn't have been able to convict anybody. So what they did was is they hid that. They went, they didn't charge Eugene Lichtenstein for anything at all. They let him go. Not only did they let him go, but it looks like they hired him as an informant so they could actually hide the evidence of all that stuff happening. And I'm the guy that comes out just about three weeks ago and says, oh, no, this is what happened. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I had the big thing is, is I had the evidence to prove it. I had the documents from my associate. He's the only guy that took his case to trial. He had all these documents. He starts shipping them over to me. He didn't really even know what he had on some of them. But I'm starting to look at the names, and I'm like, oh, geez, that's this kid's dad. (laughs) What? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. It's huge right now, and it's getting bigger every single day. That's crazy. That's scary, uh, too, though. It is. So what happens is is if, if they end up arresting Ilya Lichtenstein's father, and they might, you know, we have to see where that, where that line actually leads to. But if they end up arresting him, there will be several secret service agents that lose their careers over this. And it goes all the way up to the assistant director at that point in time. I mean, it's going to, it's going to be just ground shaking across the board and we'll see where it ends. Yeah. Man, wow. you keep on mentioning Secret Service, and I'm like waiting for someone to like <laughs> no, break in here. Out my window, <laughs> Secret Service. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I that I do. I mean, you know, I, I'm the guy these days that if something needs to be said, 
I'll say it. I don't care about the consequences. I'm just going to tell the truth at the end of the day. And I do that against criminals. I do that against organizations, law enforcement, everything else. Um, I'm known for that in the industry. I've built a, uh, I'm now, I, I pretty much built a career of trust on that. Brett Johnston will say what needs to be said regardless. And people trust me because of that. And they know that when I say something, I'm with, I'm telling them the truth. There's no ulterior motive or anything else like that. Yeah. Good. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. So not too bad. <laughs> yeah. So I have a question. Uh, huh? When you were this person that shared all this information, how does it make you feel after does it like do you feel guilt for turning someone in or do you uh have like the sense of accomplishment like i did something great so that that's a really good question that you're asking there and there's a couple of answers to that if i am working against a a criminal group I don't feel guilty at all about getting them, getting charges placed against them or helping to put them in prison because I'm yeah. not the guy who committed the crime. They are. And typically right. these days, what I've done is, is I've actually pulled them to the side and I've said, Hey, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to get a career, a legal career doing something. I'm, I'm on the dark web every single day or on telegram every single day. And I have these conversations with criminals. You know, hey, I'm Brett Johnson. You guys know who I am. You know yeah. my path and everything. Why don't you get your ass in school or get a job? Some guys listen. Very few of them listen. So I've had this conversation with most of these people before. If they continue down that path, and hey, I'm pretty good about being able to pinpoint which ones need to be arrested. If they if they continue down that path, I don't feel the least bit sorry for you. Yeah, you uh, warned them. Okay. Yeah, for yeah. a company. Uh, you take a company that uh, is not protecting people's information or is disregarding privacy concerns or stuff like that. I don't feel the least bit guilty about calling that company out because they're not doing what they need to do. Law right. enforcement, and I, these days I have a profound respect for law enforcement. I really do. I think they do an outstanding job. The, 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 the FBI people that I am privileged enough to know and have talked with, they are just outstanding human beings. I, I talk at Quantico. Uh, those the the cadets there. You see these cadets that give up high paying jobs, just a lot of money in order to do the right thing. So I have right. a lot of respect for that. But you know, if they do something wrong, I'm going to call it out. I don't care. At the end of the day, you're you. Someone has to hold these people accountable. the The right. problem is, is that it's amazing to me. That in the industry that I'm in, the cybersecurity and cybercrime industry, the industry that I'm in now, that for some reason, it's the former criminal that is the voice of morality. That just yeah. doesn't make yeah. sense to me. <laughs> you know, nobody else is calling this stuff out because, you know, they're scared of losing a job or a contract or what have you. So I'm the guy right. that calls it out, you know. <laughs> but also wouldn't. I, I would think that if I were a criminal and you said like, Hey, you need to stop. I'd be like, Oh, maybe I really should listen to him. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> and, I would, much, I would been listen there, to that. a criminal yeah. over someone that's never done anything wrong in their life. Yeah. And and that's one of the interesting things is um, when I go into those environments and talk to people, I don't judge the people that are committing crime. I don't cause I've been there. Yeah, I know, right. I know what leads to that. I know the, the mindset, things like that. I have no judgment at all. I know you're doing wrong, but, you know, I'm not judging 
changing you as a person. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I'm able to to go in there and I'm pretty much welcomed in those environments, even though that they know I'm on the other side of the fence because I don't do that judgment. You get some fraud analyst in there or a lot of law enforcement in there. And these people are coming in. Well, you're a bad person. Well, no, no, you can commit crime and not be a bad person. Yeah. That's one of the big things. And if anybody's watched Better Call Saul, that's one of the lessons for that. You know, yeah. you can be you can be a criminal and and still be an okay okay person. You're a criminal, yeah, but you're it doesn't mean you're a bad person all the time. Um Yeah, that's it's just one of those things that um it's unfortunate that when when you're committing crime, the problem is is that in order for that crime to succeed you have to cause someone harm. Yeah. Now, it's not always physical harm. It can be emotional. It can be verbal. It can be mental. It's usually cash-based. You're stealing money from these people. Right. Um, that's 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 the issue. And when you're doing it online, because it's an online environment, you don't have to see the consequences of your actions. You don't have to see the harm that you're causing someone. So when you steal that money and that's money for groceries or rent or their bills or what have you, you don't have to see the harm that you're causing. Right. And because of that, that you're, you're seeing these numbers of cyber criminals continue to explode. And, and to give you an idea of how big these things have gotten, Shadow Crew is the first one of its type. All right. Shadow Crew got shut down by federal authorities. We ended with 4,000 members. That's 2004. Fast forward to 2017, the largest criminal group at that point in time is Alphabet. Gets shut down by federal authorities, 240,000 members. Fast forward just two more years to 2019, Black Market, a dark web marketplace, gets shut down, 1.15 million members. These numbers continue to explode, and a lot of the reason is, is that you don't have to Face the consequences of your actions. You can compartmentalize who you are. And cybercrime itself continues to get easier to commit. Now, all that right. stuff together means that these numbers continues to explode. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Um, okay, so there's – I don't – let me know if you if you don't want to answer this question. It's totally okay. Any question but... you've got, I'll answer. There's nothing <laughs> off topic. Okay, so there's uh, there is one question that I want to ask you, but I want to ask a couple other ones first. Okay. If that's okay. Sure. Um, what influenced you to start cyber crimes? Uh, and was there smaller crimes that you did before you started into the cyber crimes? So, what influenced me? Um, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky is one of these areas, like the Panhandle of Florida parts of Louisiana, maybe parts of Alaska, that if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, you may be involved in a scam, hustle, fraud, whatever you want to call it. Uh, My mom was basically the captain of the entire fraud industry in Hazard, Kentucky. That's where I'm from is Hazard. So those floods that were on CNN, that epicenter, that's my hometown. Oh, man. Um, Yes. So no crime too big or too small for this woman. She takes a slip and fall (laughs) in a convenience store, tries to sue the owner. We had a neighbor she acted as a pimp for. That's mommy. What? Yeah. Yeah. My dad, my dad was a a helicopter pilot, a captain in the U.S. Army. He was a good guy. He is a good guy. Um, My dad's problem was, is he, he loved my mom so much. He was scared of her leaving. 
So he became the enabler. If she had an idea to commit a crime, he would co-sign on to it. If she wanted to abuse someone, he wouldn't step in the way. And she was horribly abusive, uh, not just yeah. physical. Her, her heart wasn't in the physical. It was in the emotional, the mental, the verbal, the negligence. This is a woman who uh, would bring men home in front of my dad. My dad would sit there and cry and beg her not to do it. She would do it anyway. You know, your show is based on the paranormal. One of the things my mom did, we uh, we were in Panama City, Florida, and uh, my dad, the only job he could get, he he got pushed out of the military, downsizing. So the only job he could get when we moved to Panama City was as a midnight clerk at 7-Eleven. He was making $140 a week was what oh, the man geez. was making. And my mom was a nurse, but she would only work as a nurse long enough to see dad go to jo- go to his job. Then she would quit, go party all night. Well, this night she wasn't partying. She was at the house. Dad was at work. Me and Denise were in the bedroom. I was, I was, geez, I was probably, I don't know, nine, eight, something like that. My sister, a year younger, uh, we were in the bedroom playing Atari and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we hear my mom, she screams for us. Shannon, I, I went by Shannon, my middle name back then. So she was like, Shannon, Denise, come here. And we looked at each other, me and Denise looked at each other and we we're like, oh shit. Yeah. So we, we walked to the living room where mom is. She's got all the lights out. She's got candles and incense burning and she's oh, moved no. two dining room chairs into the middle of the living room floor facing each other. <gasps> and my mom proceeds to tell us that, Hey, I have just sold my soul to oh. Satan. Oh no. To make sure, to make sure that you and Denise have good lives in the future. So she tells us this. Now, as an adult, you know that's bullshit. Yeah. But when you're eight, nine years old, you don't know that's that. Like, yes, it sounds so scary. <laughs> you're taking this seriously. Yeah. So, but the problem was. Me and Denise had to prove that we were worthy. Oh, no. So what happens is, is mom sits in one chair and we sit in the other chair facing her and we take turns through the night. And the game is, is you keep eye contact. You don't blink. You keep eye contact. Mom is going to let Satan come out through her eyes. We're supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts so that we don't get possessed. Oh my gosh. And this was a game that was played for hours, days. Oh my word. Over and over again. Oh my gosh. This is this is my mom. All right. We were in West Germany at one point, and my mom gets it in her head that our apartment is possessed. So she carries on a seance. And hell, at that point, me and Denise were like four and five. That <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> we were convinced that these shadow people were oh, chasing my- us through the house all the time. <laughs> Oh my God. That's, uh, that's the environment that I grew up in. Wow. So what happens is, is, uh, my mom leaves my dad. You're talking about where I got started in crime. My mom leaves my father. We were in Panama City. I was 10. My sister Denise was nine. We moved from Panama City back to Hazard, Kentucky. And my mom, she kept up those partying ways. Sometimes sure. she'd take me and Denise with her. She'd leave us in the car. Sometimes we'd wait in the living room. She went to the bedroom. Most of the time, she just left us at home. So my first crime, we've been at home for a few days. We didn't have any food in the house. I'm the kid that gets the worst parts from my mom and my dad. My mom, the criminal mindset. My dad, that fear of the people that I love leaving. Yeah. So um, 
Mom had been gone for a few days. I'm the kid that would post up at the window to see if mom was coming down the street. Sometimes I'd walk out, you know, just look down the road to see if she's driving home. Denise was the kid who just got angry. So we didn't have any food in. Denise walks in one day. She's got this pack of pork chops in her hand. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And she's like, I stole it. And I'm like, show me how you did that. So she takes me over and she shows me how she's stuffing food down her pants. And I'm like, shit, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So we start stealing food. Look across the way. There's a Kmart over there. Well, Kmart's got books, games, jewelry, music, toys. It becomes this perverted form of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We start taking everything. Mom comes home, sees all the stolen loot, asks where it came from. Ten years old, I'm the kid that stands up and says, hey, we found it. She's like, no, you didn't find that. (laughs) Niece, nine years old, nine years old. My sister stands up. She never lies at all. She's half proud. She's half pissed off. We stole it. My mom looks at my sister. Show me how you did that. And she joins. Not only does she join us, but she goes and calls her mother to join us as well. And we the become whole family. This, whole family. We become this intergenerational shoplifting ring in Eastern Kentucky. Used to take these road trips. They'd go to J.C. Penney's and steal clothes and jewelry. I'd go to the bookstore and steal books because that's the guy that I am. <laughs> and you know, but I need you guys to understand that that even though I had that upbringing, that's not why I chose to commit crime when I became an adult. Okay. When you, you had when a you're choice. A child, right. When you're a child, you can't help what the adults in your circle are right. doing. You're going to Absolutely. do that. Right. But when I became an adult, I had a choice. I made the decision to commit crime. My sister had the exact same upbringing that I did. She makes the decision to be a good parent, a good teacher, just a good overall citizen. I'm the kid that just kept on going. And as I kept going, everyone on that side of my mother's family was involved in crime. Everyone. So I grew up knowing how to do insurance fraud, burning homes for cash, faking stolen cars, um, breaking and entering, trafficking drugs, illegally strip mining coal, charity fraud, stimulus fraud, you name it. I knew how to do that growing up until finally branched off on my own. Mid-90s, I faked a car accident to get the money to get married, moved from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky. And again, I'm the guy that worst parts from my dad too. I've never been able to show love really in a healthy way. So I told my, I told my wife, I was like, ah, you don't worry about getting a job. I got that. No, you don't worry about cooking and cleaning. I got that shit too. So I'm a bit of a a control freak too, you know? And, uh, so here I am, 60-hour-a-week job, 18-hour class load, all the cooking, all the cleaning. Something had to give. What gave was the job. Sure. So I was I was in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was doing all these little hustles around Lexington. I was uh, um, I set up my own Kiwanis Club fake charity. I, I stole a bunch of uh, dining club discount restaurant cards. I was doing all these little scams and hustles and not really doing much of anything at all as far as problems. But what happens is, is I found eBay. And boy, I liked eBay a lot. I didn't really know how to make money on eBay, but Bill O'Reilly, the Fox News guy, before he got himself in trouble with all the sexual predator stuff and got fired from Fox News, he was hosting Inside Edition back then, this 30-minute TV news show. And they were profiling Beanie Babies. And I'm like, yeah, Beanie Babies, high-dollar collectible mid to late 90s. 
The one they were profiling was Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, selling for fifteen hundred dollars. Oh I'm sitting there gosh. watching the show, like, shit! I need to buy me a peanut. <laughs> so, <laughs> skip class the next day, go around all the shops looking for little peanut because I'm naive. It takes me about three hours to figure out. Idiot! He's yeah. not in the shops. Yeah. His ass is on eBay for fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, that's the reason but, why he sells so much. But what happened was, is I noticed they had these little great beanie baby elephants for eight dollars. So I'm sitting there going, "Huh? Buy a great be- beanie baby elephant for eight dollars. Stop by Kroger on the way home, pick up a pack of blue rit dye, go oh home, try gosh. to die the little guy." <laughs> Problem is, it turns out they're made out of polyester. They don't hold dye very well. Get them out of the bath. Look like they've got the mange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I ended up ripping a lady off of $1,500. I found a picture of a real one online. I posted it. She thought I had the real thing. She wins the bid. As soon as, soon as she wins the bid, I send her a message. Hey, lady, congratulations. You win. We've never done any business before. I don't even know if I can trust you. What I need oh. you to do is go down to the U.S. Postal Service, get a couple of money orders totaling $1,500. They're issued by the United States government. They protect you. They protect me. Send that to me. As soon as I get them, I'll send you your animal. Well, she did that. I get the money orders. I cash them out. I send her this creature in the mail. I immediately get this phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response was, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue ish elephant <laughs> and and right there that i laugh about it but that's really the first lesson that most criminals learn in cybercrime. and that lesson is if you delay a victim long enough you just keep putting them off a lot of them they get mad they get exasperated they throw their hands in the air they walk away and you don't hear from them again and even yeah. better none of them complain to law enforcement first lesson of cybercrime. that's the first online crime i committed the problem is, is I got away with it, did it under my own name, got away with it. And I kept wow. going. I started I, at one point. I uh, I bought a case of baseballs and signed Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire's signature to them, printed out my own certificates of authenticity, sold all those on eBay. At another point, I, there was a, a Microsoft front page. I think it was 98 at that point. <laughs> Kinko's copiers, they they were giving out trial versions of this. Well, I had a crack that would turn the trial version into the full version. So two o'clock one night, I walk into Kinko's. I look at the guy behind the counter. I was like, hey, man, can I take a few of these trial versions? He's like, man, you could take every one of them if you want. And I'm like, you serious? And he was like, yeah. So I picked up the entire kiosk, walked outside, oh my gosh. sold all those on eBay. So that was the kind of stuff that I was doing. Uh, What happens is is I got to the point where I was selling pirated software, video games and Microsoft Office, Adobe products, things like that. That led into installing mod chips so you could play pirated games, then finally mod chips so you could turn on all the cable television channels on the cable boxes. Then finally, programming satellite DSS cards, those RCA 18-inch systems. You could take the card out of it, program it, turn on all the pay-per-view, all the channels. So I started doing that. At about the same time I started doing that, a Canadian judge, in his infinite wisdom, he ruled that it was legal for Canadian citizens to pirate those signals. And he actually said it in court. He said, hey, since RCA don't sell the systems up here, my citizens can pirate it. 
Well, what okay. happens? Idiot, complete idiot. What happens is, is overnight in the United States, it's a, it opens up a little industry. You go down to Best Buy, you buy the system for $100, take it out of the parking lot, open it up, pull the system out, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it to Canada, $500 a pop. Started what doing that. This? this would have been 97 Okay. Right. The F card was the card at that point in time. Then they go on to G and H and some other letters too. But started doing that, making a lot of money, had so many orders, I could not fill them all. And wow. quickly, and I mean, I, I mean, quickly thought to myself, why do I need to fill any of the orders? They're in Canada. I'm down here. Who are they going to complain to? So, so I didn't fill any of the orders, stole even more money. Oh I was gosh. I was still in about four thousand dollars a week at that point. You know, late nineties, wow. four thousand a week. That's a good payday. Yeah. So I was still in about four thousand a week, and I started to get worried. I was like, "Well, they're going to look at me for money laundering." So I figured the best thing that I could do is get a fake driver's license, use that to open up a bank account, commit the crime under that name, cash out at the ATM. Had no idea where to get a fake driver's license, so I got online, started to look around. Thought I found a guy, sent him $200, sent him my picture. He rips me off. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was karma. Yeah, Yeah, it was karma. (laughs) And I laugh about it today, but I'm still pissed off about it today. (laughs) Back then, I was so angry that the result was Shadow Crew. So before Shadow Crew, you didn't, uh, and you have to understand that all online crime is organized. It's never a single attacker which seeks to victimize you or your company. Back then, the only way you had to organize was IRC, Internet Relay Chat, this rolling chat board where you had no idea who you were talking to, if you could trust the person, if they had a product or service, if they had it, if it worked, or if they were just going to rip you off because everyone there was a crook. What Shadow Crew did was it provided a trust mechanism that criminals could use. Now you had a forum-type structure, this large communication channel where Individuals from different time zones could reference conversations days, weeks, months old, take part in those conversations, learn from those conversations. You knew by looking at someone's screen name what the skill level of that person was, what the history of that person was. We had vouching systems in place, review systems in place, escrow systems in place, all with the singular purpose purpose of establishing trust with one criminal and another. Uh, wow. that was, the, that was the primary focus of Shadow Crew. The other thing that people talk about is that Shadow Crew was the first eBay of criminal goods. So we were the guys that kind of opened up, um, like cybercrime as a business. Yeah. That black yeah. market and, and the original internet godfather, I come by that title because of that. And you could also call me kind of the father of modern cybercrime because of yeah. that. Yeah. That not going to lie. That's a pretty cool title. Well, <laughs> that's I mean, a pretty cool title. <laughs> it was earned. I paid for it. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, that's so interesting that uh, what like you're like I'm a I'm a criminal, but I want to be able to trust other criminals. Like that's just you know well, you have to. Yeah, yeah. So it, what? And the reason why? All right. Here's here's the reason why you have to be able to trust criminals online, one criminal and another. If you think about it, for cybercrime to be successful, 
three things have to take place. You have to gather data. So that's the PII, the personal information. It's the login credentials. It's your credit card numbers. But it's also any tool that's used. So bots, uh, ransomware, malware, what have you. So you gather data. The second thing is you commit a crime. And then finally, you have to cash that crime out, put cash in pocket. What you find out is that one single attacker cannot do all three things. He can do one, sometimes two, but never all three. And there's a couple of reasons. Either he's in a geographic area where he can't do one of those necessities, or there's a problem with a skill gap. He simply doesn't know how to do one of those three things. So because of that, you have to network with other people who are good in areas where you are not. In order to do that, you have to be able to trust those people you're working with. So that's what shadow crew provided was that trust mechanism that you still see in place today wow that's so cool well, now, i don't know how cool it is shadow crew? <laughs> you know i didn't um i was running there are three sites there's counterfeit library shadow crew and then carter planet carter planet was the last site to pop up it's ran it was operated by a guy named uh dmitry golubov a ukrainian national but I started, uh, I built and ran Shadow, not Shadow, I built and ran Counterfeit Library. Uh, An associate of mine by the name of Seth Sanders, he wants to build just uh, just a fake driver's license site called Shadow Crew. So he goes off and builds it and everything. Well, he didn't have any traffic coming. So he comes back to me and he's like, hey, what do you think about just moving all the traffic from Counterfeit Library over to Shadow Crew? And I'm like, look, dude, if you if you want to do that, let me run Shadow Crew and I'll make sure it's successful. He, he was like, shit, yeah, go ahead. So I come in and turn Shadow Crew into basically this marketplace, this trust mechanism. You've got credit things going. You've got, we were dealt in identity theft, um, credit fraud, uh, fake degrees and certificates, real degrees and certificates. I mean, there was a whole list of things that we, that we operated with on Shadow Crew. The, we had rules against things like child pornography, drugs, right. and counterfeit currency. At the end of the day, the only rule we, we abided by was child pornography. We started to get into the drug trade. We certainly ran counterfeit currency, things like that as well. I'm glad you guys didn't do that because that yeah. would have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were always, we were always really against that. Um, yeah. So that's good. Um, dang it. I was going to ask you a question about uh, that specific part, but that's okay. Um, Go ahead. There's oh, nothing off topic. Re- no, I can't remember it. <laughs> okay. But was all of the self-taught, like your hacking and stuff like that, that was you just taught yourself and you had a good knack for it? It was my first computer was a Texas Instruments 994A. That was in 19, I think 1979 or 1980. TI had, had decided they were going to get out of the, uh, the home computer business. So that was the Christmas product. You had to stand in line for, you know, four or five hours to get one of these things. So that was, uh, that was my first computer. Then I had a, uh, a VIC 20, a Commodore 64. I had an Amiga. I had a TRS 80. So I grew up with computers around, um, as far as the crime element goes, what, what happens is, is I already had the criminal mindset and initially with online crime, the idea is how do you convert the physical world crimes to an online environment? So that's really a lot of what we did is figuring out how that, that physical world crime should be committed online whether it be uh-huh. a scam, whether it be a defrauding a bank, opening up accounts, things like that. Um, so I, I can't say that it, it was 
something that you learned in that environment. It was something that was already inherent that I grew up with that type of criminal mindset and that type of criminal thinking. And that's, that's really the way it was with a lot of us that were online. The names of the people that shadow crew was associated with, or that were part of shadow crew are, is a who's who of cyber criminals to this day. You know, you, you think about bit Phoenix that relates back to shadow crew, uh, quadriga. Uh, that's another thing that's on uh, Netflix, the crypto King, one of those members, two of those members, the the CEO and the CFO were Shadow Crew members. Uh, Omar wow. Danani, Michael Patron, Gerald Cotton, both of those were Shadow Crew members. The largest credit card thief in history, Albert Gonzalez, was my forum techie. At wow. one. So, and it keeps going. It Max big. Butler, uh, Max Butler, who is in the book Kingpin by Kevin Polson, I'm in that book as well. He was a Shadow Crew member. If you most of the big cases over the past 25 years, 25, let's see, 2004, 20 years over the past 20 years, most of the big cases have some relation back to Shadow Crew. So, wow. and and those those individuals. Today, if you're if you're a newbie just getting involved in cybercrime, you really don't have to understand the dynamics of any crime at all. But back then, you had to understand every single step of everything that was going on. You had to know how to run a drop address. You had to know the security of the companies that you were hitting. You had to know the security of fake driver's licenses, of the bank accounts that you were setting up, of operational security so you wouldn't be identified. You had to understand every single aspect. It doesn't work like that anymore. But the the original guys like I was, we knew every single thing that was going on across the board. Wow. That's how it is. That's how it is. You know, these days (laughs) it's it's not like that. These days you go in and yeah, you go in, you buy a tutorial for five or $10. You can take a live instruction class. All the products and services are off the shelf. You can buy a tutorial on how to hack into stuff. So you you go to Telegram, especially during the pandemic, Uh, you know, unemployment fraud was wide open. So you could buy a tutorial on Telegram that would walk you through step-by-step on how to commit unemployment fraud for some specific state. Oh, my god! And it worked. You had 16-year-olds on Telegram that were stealing $60,000 a week on unemployment fraud. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. And it was all 50 states. I mean, it was it was Alaska. It was uh, California got hit for, I think, they're finally admitting $32 billion. It's more probably like sixty billion at the end of the day. Wow. I mean, all these states got wow. billions and billions of dollars of fraud. And as far as catching these guys, you're not going to. Not on unemployment fraud, you're not. Wow. wow. Well, I crazy. know what I'm doing after this. Say, <laughs> <laughs> say, what's those Telegram channels there, Brett? Just for research purposes. What is this dark web you see? Yeah. What is this? You got an address? Where can I find out more about that? <laughs> If you were going to buy a tutorial, which tutorial would you buy, Brett? I'm Googling how to get into the dark web. <laughs> Not uh, saying I'm going to do it. I'm just researching. Just just hypothetically. That's it. It's for the podcast. That's right. <laughs> so was there a time where you're like, I'm going, this is too far, or a time where you're like, I'm, I'm terrified that I'm going to get caught? Oh, there's a point where you're like, I'm not going to do that. So this, I mean, this story is nuts. Okay. So uh, what happens is back then law enforcement really didn't understand security either. Okay. So we started to see IP addresses of the Pentagon, of DOD, of the Secret Service, of international law enforcement, everything else 
visiting our site. Not only that, but we had this kid who went by the screen name of Enhance. So both of you young ladies are maybe too young to remember this, but in the early 2000s, Paris Hilton had her phone contact list published. Oh, I remember that. That was us. What? That was us. That's hot. That was this guy (laughs) named Enhance that did this. Not only did he do that, but he also intercepted text messages of the United States Secret Service investigating Shadow Crew. So we had text messages about them investigating us. I'm sitting there. I'm head of the pile. I'm the, I'm the ringleader of it all. And I'm starting to get worried. I'm like, man, they're going to indict me on some sort of RICO act, you know, racketeering charges. And they would have. So about the same time is when I happen upon this new type of fraud called tax return identity theft. So the reason your all's tax returns are delayed every single year is the son of a bitch that's talking right now. <laughs> I'm the guy that created that crime. Thanks, right. of things. Yeah. Thank you, IRS. I'm going to say thank you, that's Brett me. Johnson. That's yeah. me. And I got to where I was filing uh, fraudulent income taxes manually once every six minutes. I would do that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Usually 200 returns a week. On the next day, I would take a road trip. Uh, a road trip. I would plot out a map of ATMs. I would spend the next two days cashing out. Come back to Charleston, South Carolina. So those, uh, the backpack, like you see these college kids throw on their shoulders, a backpack like that will hold $150,000 in twenties. That's seven and a half keys of cash. Wow. So I put $150,000 in twenties in a backpack. I had a spare bedroom in Charleston, South Carolina. I'd open up the spare bedroom. I'd chuck the backpack in there and forget about it. Then one day you open up that spare bedroom and you see all these backpacks in there and you're like, shit. I got to do something with all that money. <laughs> and then, then you learn how to launder money. But, uh, but that's uh, what happened was, is yeah, I saw the writing on the wall and um, I retired from shadow crew within uh, just a few months before my forum techie, Albert Gonzalez, he got arrested. So he got arrested and he flipped and went to work for the secret service. I ended up retiring from shadow crew before he started work for the secret service. So that's how I got out of being arrested. Was that interesting? Yeah. Um, can you tell me why you decided to go to Disney world? <laughs> sure. Sure. So, I love, I'm a huge Disney fan and I just, I am I too. Just came back. But... <laughs> so what happened was that I was in Las Vegas, Nevada the night before I had stolen $160,000 out of ATMs, went back to the hotel, woke up the next morning, signed on to cartersmarket.com. It was ran by Max Butler at that point in time, signed on to cartersmarket.com. And the first post on the forum, it was, it was stickied as the first post said Gollum fund. That was my name. Gollum fund, United States most wanted. And I sat there before I clicked on it. I sat there like, what? So then I clicked on it and it had my picture and a link to the United States Secret Service. And they were talking about how I had been working on Operation Anglerfish, like this anglerfish behind me. Uh-huh. They had been, they talked about how I'd been working on Operation Anglerfish and how Operation Anglerfish was a, was a project, was a law enforcement investigation meant to arrest cyber criminals. And they said, Hey, this guy's on the run. He's United States most wanted. Any information, let us know. 
So they were trying to, um, they were, they law enforcement was looking for me and they were trying to make sure that, that I had no assistance from criminals online as well, because I had a lot of contacts. So I sat there. It was the first time that my name had ever been mentioned publicly on, on criminal forums. It was the first time my picture had ever been released, anything else. And I sat there just staring at it for a few minutes. And, uh, Finally, I was like, and I said it out loud. I was like, well, Brett, you've made the United States most wanted list. What are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> you just so, won the Super Bowl. That's it. That's it. So I, I had a Jeep Cherokee. I loaded up everything in the Jeep Cherokee in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I drove my ass to Disney World. I um, I bought, I didn't buy, I rented a timeshare with cash for nine months. I went and I bought $30,000 worth of furniture, $30,000 worth of electronics, and another $30,000 in a DVD collection. And the idea was, I'll just camp my happy ass out in Orlando, hit Disney World, hit Universal Parks every single day for a year, and then I'll finally be able to bug out to Florianopolis, Brazil, where I already had a house picked out and everything else. The idea, go down to Brazil, set up shop, do it all again. Do it all again. (laughs) Do it all again. And I lasted, uh, I lasted, I think, I think it lasted two months. In Orlando. Wow, that's actually really uh, long. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, what happens is it was September sixteenth, two thousand uh, two thousand six. Uh, September sixteenth, two thousand six. I was I was in bed. It was a Saturday, and I got this knock at the door. Well, I was used to because they were still building this entire resort. I was used to the builders coming by and asking if everything was all right. So I got my happy ass out of bed. It was like ten thirty in the morning. I got my happy ass out of bed. Went and looked at the keyhole. Nobody was there. I was like, hmm. So I opened up the door, stepped out in the hallway, and walking down the hall were two Secret Service agents out of South Carolina that I knew and an Orange County Sheriff's deputy. Well, they turned around. As soon as they turned around, I'm like, hey, guys, how are you? And and Bobby Kirby, he was like, Brett Johnson, you son of a bitch. (laughs) And I was like, hi. And I did it just like that. I was like, hi, would you guys like to come in? (laughs) <laughs> Bobby looked at me. He's like, well, we're going to put you in cuffs first. And I was like, well, I figured. And I mean, said it exactly like that. Cause I was a pure asshole. And so they put me in cuffs, take me in, sit me down on my sofa that I just spent $3,600 for. And Bobby <laughs> looks at me. Bobby's like, he was like, do you have anything in the apartment? And I was like, yeah, there's $125,000 cash in the bedroom. So he starts to walk through the bedroom and I said, and an AK 47. <laughs> Oh God. He stops dead. He looks at me. He's like, are you serious? And I'm like, no, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> and he says it again. He's like, Brett Johnson, you son of a bitch. Oh my God. So that's how I got caught was that they put me in, uh, they put me in the Orange County Detention Center. And what happens? I mean, it's a crazy story. What happens is, is, um, I didn't start drinking until I was 34. I've never used drugs. I've smoked like three or four joints in my life, shit like that. So I'm, I'm in this Orange County federal detention center and this meth guy kind of takes me in under his wing and he's telling me one day, he's like, Hey, the only time you get off in federal prison drug program. And I'm like, man, I don't use drugs. And he was like, well, you can find a drug problem. Can't you? (laughs) I'm like, you know, I can find a drug problem. So they they give me this thing called diesel therapy, which is you stop at every single county jail going back to Columbia, South Carolina. 
So I, I went through like 10 or 12 county jails getting from Orlando back to um, Columbia, South Carolina. And at every single county jail, they ask you, do you use drugs? And I was like, yep, alcohol and cocaine. So I get to Columbia. My lawyer, my public pretender, looked exactly like Billy D. Williams. This guy, the only good thing he ever did for me, he stands up and he gets the judge to order a psychological evaluation. So a psychologist comes in at the county jail. It's a four-hour interview about halfway through. Psychologist looks at me and he's like, do you use any type of drugs? And I'm like, yeah. Well, what do you use? Cocaine? Smoke or snort? Snort? How much? An eight ball a day. And he looks at me and he's like, that's a lot. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, do you have any trouble out of that? And I'm like, yeah, I can't get an erection. <laughs> and he looks at me and I'm looking at him and I got that shit from watching Boogie Nights. Mark Wahlberg <laughs> yeah. at the end, yeah. it won't stand <laughs> to attention. And I'm like, it's got to be real. So I looked, at, I, looked at the, I looked at the psychologist and I'm like, finally, we're both quiet. And I'm like, is that right? <laughs> and he was like, he was like, it could happen. And then he looks at me and he's like, is it still going on? And I'm like, no, not that I need it to work right now. <laughs> so, so that makes it into what's called the PSR, the pre-sentence report. So when you're sentenced to prison, the prosecutor and the probation office sit down, do a background check on you and tell the judge how much time you need to get. Well, that whole drug thing makes it into my PSR. So at the day of sentencing, I'd already told everybody in my cell block that if they give me any more than 60 months, I'm going to release myself. So I get up there at sentencing the prosecutor. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He's like, Johnson has manipulated the Secret Service. He's manipulated the prosecutor and he's manipulating you today, Your Honor. And we insist on the upper limits of the guidelines, 75 months. The judge looks over at me and she was like, I agree, 75 months. And I'm like, so I looked at my lawyer and I was like, can you get the drug program for me? He's like, I don't know. I'll ask. So he stands up. He says, your honor, will you order the drug program for Mr. Johnson? The judge says, no, but I'll recommend he gets evaluated for it. I looked at my lawyer. What does that mean? He was like, well, you're probably not going to get it. And my exact words, the way the conversation went, I remember it to a T. I was like, well, how soon can you get me to the camp? And he was like, well, if you don't appear. I can get you there pretty quickly. Again, my exact words, fuck the appeal. Get me to the camp. I'll take it from there. He looks at me like I'm the biggest idiot in the world. <laughs> so oh I get to the camp. I'm there for six weeks. I get a job outside of the camp and I end up escaping and is what happens. And here's the funny part of that, as if all that wasn't bizarre to begin with. The funny part of that is I'm, I'm only out about three weeks. The U.S. Marshals, they're canvassing a three-state area. They find me after about three weeks. When they find me, I've got another laptop. I've got stolen identities. I've got prepaid debit cards, and I'm Already. setting up shop again. And, uh, so the day of the sentencing, because the escape happened so soon after the initial sentencing, they used the exact same pre-sentence report. Only this time, I'm not in South Carolina. I'm in Kentucky, and I'm a Kentucky boy. So what happens is, day of sentencing on the escape, prosecutor stands up, the Secret Service is there again, and the prosecutor's like, Your Honor, we would appreciate it if you would take into consideration that when Mr. Johnson was caught this time, it looks like he was involved in crime yet again. The judge looks at him and says, No. If you were going to charge Mr. Johnson with that, you should have charged him with it. I'm only going to consider the escape. Then he looks over at me and he's like, Mr. Johnson, 
He's like, I don't know why you did these things, but it looks like by you keeping your mouth shut right now, you're saving yourself a serious charge. And I'm like, yes, your honor. <laughs> then, he, <laughs> then he picks up the, the pre-sentence report and he's thumbing through it. And he says, it also looks like before you got involved with all these drugs, you were a pretty good citizen. And I'm like, yes, your honor. Yes. So, so then he says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you 15 more months for the escape. But I'm going to order the drug program for you. So here's the way this works out. You get 15 months on the escape, but the drug program gives you 12 months off. Plus, it puts you in a halfway house six months. So I ended up getting out of prison three months before I would have had I not escaped. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> that All right. So crazy. Oh, it's, it's insane. But, but the, the good thing is, is that the drug program, it's not about drug rehab. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. It teaches you that your thoughts determine your feelings. Your feelings determine your actions. So if you think, if you change your thought process, your actions will end up changes, changes oh. as well. And that really helped change my life between my yeah. sister, my wife, Michelle, the FBI, and then CBT. That really was the uh, the foundation of me being able to change my life around. Absolutely. It was the best lie that I ever told. <laughs> it really was. It really did help you. It did. That's it was the, awesome. it was the most productive, best lie that I ever told. And I, I still quote parts of that program today. I wish so, they do that for everybody. Everyone yeah. needs it. Absolutely. Everyone needs yeah. it. Uh, why did you decide to escape? prison because like my thought process is you're a dummy why would you do that you did you think you were gonna go i'm not calling well, you I, dumb but i prefer to yes, think of it not as escape i don't think of it as escape i think of it as the institution could no longer benefit me so i decided oh. to release myself on my own recognizance oh, okay now the How reason i decided it? to escape was um I didn't have anything left. You know, I I, I was uh, madly in love with this girl, and we were engaged to be married when I was initially arrested. That relationship breaks off. I thought I had hit rock bottom. I didn't know that I had a lot farther to go. Um, so my viewpoint was, is I had nothing to lose at all. Um, yeah. So I figured, you know, why stay here if I can get out? I can set up shop, bug out, and start things back again. Um, so that's that was really the primary focus of escape. And the way that I escaped, I was at a minimum security, but my father, he starts to visit. He I hadn't had a conversation with my dad probably in 20 years. He shows up at my sentencing, and he stands up and he tells the judge, hey, I want to make sure Brett gets a good start. He can live with, with me when he gets out. Well, dad starts to visit with me. About the third conversation in, he looks at me. He's like, you know, I've been reading about you online. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah. He's like, that's a lot of money you made. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, uh, you think you could teach somebody how to do that? Well, when I first started to tell that in my presentations, I lied about it. And I said, you know, I thought my dad was back in my life. And he wasn't. He was just trying to use me. The truth of the matter is, is that my dad was back in my life. But the man hadn't talked to me in about 20 years. And the way that he viewed me was through that lens of my mother, that criminal activity. I really think that's the only way that he thought he could talk to me. Right. It was like that. And I chose to manipulate the man into helping me escape. He had $4,000 cash to his name. 
I got him to give me that, a change of clothes, a cell phone, and a driver's license, and I escaped. I taught him how to do that fraud, but I escaped. Uh, so I used the man. Um, these days, me and my father, we have a very good relationship. As a matter of fact, I'm moving the man in with me in the next oh. few weeks. He's he's getting oh. elderly. He can't really take care of himself anymore. So I'm moving him in with me. I, I love my dad to no end. And I would do yeah. anything in this world. To help him. I, I, my mom is still alive. I love my mom. I don't like my mom, <laughs> but I love her, but I can't really engage with her because she's a very toxic individual. Yeah. Uh, and she's right. got some mental issues as well, but I, I don't know how to, uh, to really navigate or cope with that. So it's easier for me to just cut off that contact. Right. Okay. Right. Wow. Um, so I have two more questions for you. Sure. Okay. So this one is, they say that people don't change, but you're walking proof that that statement is completely wrong. Sure. Uh, you are doing so much good in your life now. What is the proudest thing that you have done since you've changed your life? You know, it's it may sound cliche, but the proudest thing I've done is making sure that Carson Connor is turning out to be a good human being. That's my youngest stepson. Oh, okay. That's the proudest thing that I've done right now. He is uh, he's had some issues and everything, but I tell you what, the the young man is coming along just fine. Uh you know, I didn't have um I didn't have children of my own. And the, the reason was, there's a few reasons. The first is I was a criminal and I didn't want to bring them up in that environment. But the second reason was, is um, I was scared that if I did, that I would be my mother, that yeah. that would somehow follow through. And so I never had children. And that's one of the largest regrets that I have in my life is that I would have loved, absolutely loved to have had kids. And I really believe that now, that I would have been a very good father. Um, I find that I am. You are, yeah. To, uh, to Carson and, and Brendan. But uh, that's really what I'm most proud of, is that right there? That's awesome. I love that. Oh, dang it. <laughs> You're make me tear up. <laughs> me too. Okay. So I have a fun question for you. Sure. Do you ever get worried you're going to mess up on your taxes now? <laughs> <laughs> You should see how much in taxes I owe. Oh, I bet. Yeah. It's like, my God, when you're legal, you got to pay these people. Yeah. You know? I mean, my God. It's, uh, and then we got Biden. I don't know how you are on the political spectrum, but I hate them both. I start my morning. I, I start every morning by watching CNN and Fox News so I can be pissed off at everybody. Uh, That's uh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everybody. I'm an equal opportunity <laughs> hater. And this idea that they're going to hire another 76,000 IRS agents. I'm like, what on earth are you guys even doing? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. 76,000 is Jeez. what they're going to hire. Why? So, so they can hit everybody. Oh, you know, gosh. everybody's going to get audited. And, you know, all the rich people already get audited. So they're not yeah. hiring those agents for those guys. They're hiring those agents for us guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 there are difficulties that you don't encounter when you're a criminal. <laughs> you turn your life around. You know, as a criminal, you don't really care about taxes. <laughs> you know? It's so hard being a good human being. It's rough out here. <laughs> it's, it's different. It's difficult. It is. It's difficult. Oh, man. Do you do your own taxes? I assume. You know, you I was up own. until this year. 
Um, now I'm like, no, no more, no more. Leave it to the professionals. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's why I've got that huge tax bill. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to navigate this list, this stuff legally. <laughs> you know, if I, if, I, job, if I do fraud, I won't owe anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't do it legally and, and, and be all right. So. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything. I don't know if you have more to share, but those you answered all of my questions. I have no, it's, you. Uh, you know, I, I really thank you guys for bringing me on. Truly. I think you guys have got a great show. Um, I love the uh, the angles with the neighbors and the cryptids and everything else. And I just uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, truly. Yeah. Where, where all can our listeners uh, find you? Well, of course, I'm on Netflix uh, and I've got yeah. more documentaries on the way, probably a film and some, a, a, definitely a book coming and everything else. But in the interim, you can catch me on YouTube on the Brett Johnson show where I talk about cybersecurity, crime, stuff that pisses me off and that journey I'm taking about trying to be a better man every single day. So that's the show on YouTube. Please tune into that. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Brett Johnson. You can go to my website, www.anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P as in Paul, H-I-S-H dot com. Here's the thing. Yes, I like money, but I do not charge. If someone's got a problem or an issue, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help you and see you through that. Okay. Well, so, you helped me before. I, uh, I, I, I know you, I had my card hacked into or something and right. I had to get a whole new card and you recommended that I froze all of my accounts through what were the three, through uh, the three credit bureaus. So, yeah. you know, if, if you're, They're and that's still one frozen. of the things, good, they need yeah. to be. So, you know, and the listeners that are out there in order to not be victimized, freeze the credit of every single person in the house. You have to contact all three credit bureaus to do that. Monitor your accounts, place alerts on those accounts, and use a password manager. Those three things. Um, but yeah, if you guys have got any of your listeners, if you got any issues, feel free to reach out to me. You may have to chase me down because I tend to be a little busy sometimes. But uh, reach out to me, and I'm happy to help you any way that I possibly can. And I mean that too. That's great. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you sharing all. that. <laughs> so, great. would you? I'm gonna end uh, end the show with a, another neighborhood story. And uh, this one is a text chain between neighbors, and it oh starts off by saying, hey, Dave, or hey, Dave and I are in a fight, and he changed the locks. Can you break in? I'll give you $40. That sounds a little sketch. What are you going to do once you get in? If you do something illegal, I'm not sure I'm down. Shit in his bed and then cover it up so he won't know until he gets in bed tonight. That's not illegal. <laughs> Was that from what's her face? Uh, Amber Heard. Amber Turd. Amber Turd. I want to squat and drop. I mean, you really dislike somebody when you do that. Exactly. And it really sucks when you're ready to go to bed at night and you're ready to get in those nice clean sheets and then there's shit right there. That's right. Especially if it's cold by that point. (laughs) (laughs) And down at the foot of the bed where it's squishing between your toes. And that's not good. (laughs) That's not good. Oh, man. Uh, That's great. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. 
So uh, to thought, listen to our podcast, you can find us on all of the streaming sites. We are big on iTunes and Spotify. You can rate and review us there. We really appreciate that. Uh, also, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. We have a Facebook group. We're also on Snapchat. Uh, we're everywhere. Just look up at WWTN Podcasts. We also have a website, whatswiththeneighbors.com. And on there, you can find a link to everything that she just mentioned, along with a link to our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash WWTN podcast. For $5 a month, you can get exclusive unedited videos out early of our episodes. And uh, for $3 a month, you can get our edited audio episodes early and exclusive content. Feel free to slide into our DMs with any questions, comments, or story suggestions. Once a month, we strive to do listener stories. and that's at wwtnpodcast at gmail.com. And have you checked in on the neighbors? Brian, Amy, out. You're supposed to say, what's with the neighbors? What's with the neighbors? <laughs> what's with the neighbors? <laughs> We've been doing this a whole year. <laughs> We've been doing this for 55, 56 episodes, oh, yeah. and I messed that part up. Maybe the 100th episode, I get it. <laughs> <laughs>